The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today we're going to talk about what it will take to defeat a global pandemic, what we have learned, what we've forgotten, and what do we simply not appreciate about the science and the operational complexity of chasing down and containing a deadly virus. I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Paul Perrin, who is the Director of Monitoring and Evaluation at the Pulte Institute for Global Development within the Keough School of Global Affairs here at the University of Notre Dame. Paul got his doctorate in public health from Johns Hopkins and was previously Director of Program Evaluation at Catholic Relief Services, where he worked closely with colleagues dealing with the Ebola pandemic, and where he also co-authored an article on preparing for pandemics based on early experience with influenza that has actually generated a lot of attention among public health practitioners last year when the COVID pandemic really took off. Paul, delighted to have you with us and uh, have this opportunity to get together today and have this conversation. It couldn't be, I think, timelier. Let's begin by exploring what you've discovered about mental health impacts of pandemics. What have we actually learned? Well, Ray, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast and for this conversation. I look forward to what we discussed today. First and foremost, what we've learned is that mental health is often an afterthought when it comes to pandemics. The focus is on the physical health and well-being of the population. And so mental health takes a backseat, unfortunately, for better or for worse. And even though this is something that affects so many people in a pandemic. Second, mental health issues are often a natural consequence of living through a pandemic. We've seen this through our experience with a number of pandemics, including the influenza pandemics in the past, the previous SARS pandemic, which was also a a disease related to COVID. We've seen this with Ebola. We've seen this with HIV. So we have a lot of experience to draw upon, and we learned that oftentimes because of the physical threat and the intense stress that people are under, mental health issues surface as a result of all of these stressors, particularly when a form of isolation is involved. A third thing that we've learned is that healthcare professionals are just as vulnerable as the rest of us in the context of a pandemic when it comes to mental health issues perhaps even more so due to their close proximity to the disease on a daily basis. And as a result of a failure to adequately protect them and address their physical and mental health adequately can actually negatively affect the overall trajectory of the pandemic. Failing to protect healthcare workers and failing to safeguard their mental health can affect their performance on the job and it can affect the way that the overall trajectory of the pandemic unfolds in a population. The final thing we've learned is that mental health issues can actually be mitigated through leadership and decision-making practices, as I'm sure we will discuss through the course of this conversation. So, Paul, there seem to be various types of responses to pandemic scenario. The first type seems to be prompted by just simply the sheer fear of the unknown, a sense that we all felt as COVID appeared and we really had little idea about transmission. 
And how does that type of fear manifest itself? Well, I think we've all experienced that in the course of this pandemic. We felt it. We felt fear. We felt what it feels like to be faced with a situation, an enemy, if you will, that is unknown, that we don't know exactly what the weaknesses are, what it's exploiting in us. And fear is a really powerful emotion that can strongly influence decisions and behavior in human beings. It's such a powerful emotion that it can actually crowd out all many different other forms of input into the brain. And it can actually cause people to reject facts about a disease or a pandemic as they become known and understood. So responding to fears, what I would call fear-based approaches to responding to a pandemic can actually give the illusion of making progress. You're going through activities and actions that respond to the fears, but those activities can may not actually respond to the reality of the situation. And they can actually limit progress, limit the impact on the issue itself, or worse, responding to fears can actually worsen the pandemic. An example of this situation arose early on in the pandemic when people started talking across their fears. There was a group of people who were basing their fears and their emotions and their decisions on the pandemic itself, the disease itself. Other groups were basing their fears and their emotions and their responses on the fears related to the impact on the economy and or civil liberties. And it's important to note that in these contexts, fear can actually be manipulated and weaponized and politicized. In some corners, the fear of the actual disease was actually less than the fear of government intrusion on personal liberties. We saw this in the United States as the pandemic began to draw on. Once that fear is established in a population, it's actually hard to dislodge it, no matter what new facts or insights come. At a time when we as a country really needed to unite against a common threat, our fears began to tear us apart and it actually cost us pretty dearly in terms of lives and impact. So a second sort of response, which actually I find fascinating, but actually I think we saw this a lot with the HIV AIDS pandemic, is the whole issue of social stigma that's often associated with being seen as one of the infected. In other words, those early people that actually were the ones that were infected and ended up in a hospital. This type of thing would seem to, I think, prompt other kinds of responses, you know, both in the individuals, the stigmatized individuals, and perhaps even the way people respond to the to those individuals once even they're released uh, from the hospital. Yeah, you definitely see this. When a human being is seen more as a threat than a human, when they are seen as almost like a biological vessel for a threat, then it becomes easy to dehumanize these people. And as you've mentioned, we've seen this in a number of different situations. We certainly saw this with HIV. And oftentimes the stigmas were not actually based on any sort of reality, just a perception of the threat. And it made it very difficult to actually make progress on HIV when certain groups were stigmatized. For example, in the context of HIV, what we found were groups such as injecting drug users or commercial sex workers or men who had sex with men, which were really high-risk populations, became so stigmatized that those groups did not want to identify themselves to public health officials uh, that would enable them to 
receive certain services or mitigation strategies. And so it pushes some of the issues underground. People do not want to make themselves known. And so it, it tends to hide the disease. And in so doing, that fuels the, the spread of the disease because one of the most significant weapons in the response to a pandemic is understanding the spread of it, understanding who currently presents with it. And you can then mitigate the situation with that individual and also mitigate the spread that that the threat of spread that that individual can provide. So stigma can really be a powerful force for pushing a disease underground and hiding the true impact and spread of the disease and making it difficult for public health to respond to the disease. As well as perhaps even igniting sort of uh, misbehavior on the part of the general public, which we saw in the AIDS pandemic, we actually saw in some countries, people who had the HIV virus, they might be even burned alive in their homes, you know, because of hysteria in, in a neighborhood based on the sort of the stigma of, of the disease at that point and people's mis, you know, misunderstanding or lack of understanding about what it was all about. Absolutely. So the third of these responses actually is one that I think might be experienced most by the healthcare workers you mentioned earlier, which is the whole issue of trauma, which is actually sort of the maybe a result of being exposed to the impacts of the disease kind of on the front lines, as it were. What's your your sense of that, how that manifests itself? Well, trauma is is not unique to pandemics. Uh, There are any number of traumas that we experience in life. And trauma in and of itself is a reality of the human experience. But when it is prolonged, when it is extended over time, and when the, it, particularly when the threat itself is poorly understood, it can begin to impact the psychological well-being of the population exposed to it. And so there's a difference between trauma and what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder, which is when that trauma then affects the day-to-day life of that person. It can manifest in terms of reliving that trauma on a regular basis, that trauma coloring otherwise benign inputs and making everything else seem more threatening. Uh, It can manifest with a lack of sleep or rest. It can manifest it just with an overall heightened anxiety, which can be exhausting. And so it's a very human reaction to prolonged stress. And when healthcare workers are placed in a situation where they feel like their safety and well-being are under constant threat, and the system is not necessarily protecting them adequately, that trauma can turn very easily into something more akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. So maybe if we sort of take all three of these cases and, and ask, you know, are they all, should we think of them as negative responses or could some of them be viewed as positive responses? In other words, responses that in some sense are an effort by the body or the mind, in some sense, respond to the the imminent danger, if you will, and and maybe perhaps a sign of resilience in the face of a looming threat. Absolutely. We've definitely seen evidence of this in the past as well as in the present. And I think one of the key things that's important to understand in the context of a significant event, such as the one that we're going through with the COVID pandemic, is the issue of worldview. And as you've noted, I've been involved in a number of different public health responses, but I've also been involved in humanitarian response to disasters, whether it be earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, pandemics. And 
I've seen themes that cross these different types of significant events that are quite disruptive to people's lives and well-beings. And one thing that's helped me to really understand the reaction that people have is the idea of a worldview. We all have a worldview, and I, I like to think of it a little bit as the operating system of our brain. It's the way that we process information. It's what allows us to function on a day-to-day basis in this world that we inhabit. And there are many things that shape our worldview throughout the course of our life, our upbringing, our social surroundings, the institutions that influence us, all of these things influence this. When a disruption happens that influences and impacts our worldview, that makes it so that what we thought we knew about the world and our ability to exist safely in it no longer applies to the new reality, there are a number of ways in which we can respond to that. One is to deny the change in the reality, and that can have really significant impact and a toll on a human being. And I've seen this very often when people live in the past. They live in that world that existed before the disruption. And those are when you can start to see some of these negative things. People act out of fear. They blame whomever they feel is responsible for bringing the threat into their lives. And and those are some of the negative threats. But there are also people who respond to this threat to the worldview by recognizing that their previous worldview no longer exists and they create new worldviews. And so what you see actually where there's social disruption and chaos and um, mental health issues, there are also people who respond in very constructive ways. So you'll see in many instances increases in cohesion, social cohesion, because there's a shared trauma. People can talk about it they acknowledge it, and they're able to discuss how that affects their perceptions and their reality in an effort to create a new reality. For many people, situations such as this can also help them focus on what's important in life. And so you will often see people talk about how it strengthened their bond with their families, their loved ones, or with their social group. It can also increase volunteerism and civil participation. When you see something like this where there's a common threat, people will mobilize and say, I would like to be part of the process of addressing this common threat. So you'll see that type of a mobilization. And it can also assist in creating a more compassionate worldview, particularly with COVID, where it has affected virtually every human life on the planet to some degree, helping us feel like we are one in experiencing this trauma can create a space for a more compassionate worldview. Well, that's really interesting. In some ways, it feeds into sort of my next question, which really has to do with you know, the idea that you know we've seen that the COVID virus itself has had differential impacts on different types of individuals and populations. So if we think about that for a moment, could you say, for example, that we might see similar patterns of vulnerability or susceptibility to psychological impacts to a pandemic? And what are some of the characteristics that might characterize the most affected groups, the ones that are most likely to be to have the negative out as opposed to the positive sort of outcomes? I will preface what I'm about to say by first stating that we are only now beginning to start to understand what's happening in the specific context of COVID. But what I'm about to say applies to lessons we've learned from previous either disasters or uh, pandemic situations. And so First and foremost, I would say 
individuals that would be particularly susceptible to mental health impacts are those who find themselves in a strong degree of isolation. Now, we've all had to, to some degree, isolate ourselves physically and potentially even socially from those around us in an attempt to halt the spread of the virus. That said, when the orders to stay at home in many instances were either recommended or forcibly enforced, many individuals who do not have a, an immediate social circle or family or whatever you might want to call it, sort of roommates, found themselves completely physically and socially isolated. And those individuals would be considered high risk for developing some kind of a mental health issue down the line. For understandable reasons, we know that social networks can really help mitigate mental health issues. Having people to talk to, people that you can share your burdens with, can be really positive, can positively influence the trajectory of mental health outcomes. And not having that conversely can lead an individual to bear those burdens on one's own, and that can be a significant risk factor. Another one is older adults. My own dissertation focused on displacement and the population that emerged as particularly vulnerable for mental health issues were the older populations. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that potentially for some of these groups, their worldview has been established for a long period of time, and it's what's enabled them to exist in a world. And when that worldview is disrupted late in life, it can be really difficult to construct a new worldview. And that puts people at risk for adverse mental health outcomes. There's also a correlation between what I just mentioned about isolation and some older adults who may not be living with family in the way that they did previously, or who may be even institutionalized as a result of their age. And so that's another group. Uh, we know from research also that females are more susceptible to mental health issues, although we do not know necessarily for each situation whether that's a, an issue of self-reporting with males failing to admit certain issues that they may be facing mentally, not wishing to show weakness because of cultural norms. Uh, but nevertheless, we often see that, that females are at higher risk. And then I would add that this may be a situation unique to COVID, and this is anecdotal, but I think the, the young have experienced some pretty significant disruptions in terms of what is expected to happen in their lives at their age. With graduation ceremonies, with social gatherings limited, with dances, with even being cut off from their peers in the classroom, I really feel like we are going to see significant mental health issues in our youth. And we need to pay attention to that. They're not necessarily usually a high-risk group, although teenagers can be pretty angsty and moody at times. But I do feel like we need to pay particular attention to this group at this time to help them transition into a healthy adulthood. So perhaps a the contrast with the more isolated population is the would be the daily contact with affected populations that put healthcare workers at particularly high risk. They, so I think they're probably 
they are on, on the front lines, as we know, in a unique situation facing the high likelihood of exposure to the worst aspects of the disease and, as we've seen, death on a daily basis. And how does the impact on healthcare workers vary from the general population in terms of you know what they experience and the symptoms they might manifest? In some ways, they could be responding with tremendous amounts of compassion. In some ways, they have to for their work. But at the same time, they could almost experience kind of compassion exhaustion, if I can put it that way. Yes, that's absolutely a reality of the situation. I think we have to acknowledge the incredible sacrifice that many healthcare workers took in response to the COVID pandemic. We have to acknowledge that. Where many people had the luxury of retiring to working from home and taking precautions, safety precautions to protect their health and well-being, healthcare workers found themselves in the exact opposite situation, running towards this threat. And I think we have to acknowledge just how important that decision is that each healthcare worker took to take that step. There were many lessons that were there for the taking. Unfortunately, we did not learn all of them from previous pandemics that have happened. One of them is the incredible toll that these types of situations can take on healthcare workers if we do not protect them adequately. Ensuring adequate protective equipment was one of the major themes of the paper that I wrote that you mentioned earlier on in the podcast. And we knew, the U.S. government knew, because I based a lot of my paper on existing resources literature, many of which were produced by the U.S. government. The U.S. government knew that a situation like this was likely to happen at some point. And one of the conclusions is that we needed to ensure adequate protective equipment. Well, that did not happen. We did not provide sufficient protective equipment for healthcare workers early on in the pandemic. And that forces a healthcare worker to make a choice, a choice around their own personal safety and potentially by extension, the safety of their family members and or other loved ones that they live in close proximity to with the, the health and well-being of the patients that they are serving. And I feel like in many situations, we failed the healthcare workers by forcing them to make that choice because we failed to protect them adequately. And so making them make that choice and to the credit of so many healthcare workers choosing to perform their duties at great risk to their, their own selves, many healthcare workers had to choose to isolate from their families to protect the safety of their families. And we've already talked about the impact of isolation. So you've got this situation with healthcare workers where they're at constant daily risk to their health and well-being. Uh, severe stress. The, the healthcare system was overstretched in many instances and continues to be so, and compounding that with a situation of isolation. And so it comes as no surprise to me that we've put healthcare workers at increased risk for adverse mental health outcomes down the line. And I hope we can invest resources to support them at this time and mitigate some of those mental health issues that are bound to arise. And I think we've seen probably the consequences of what you're talking about, that choice to be made with, you know, we're now increasing reports on, on healthcare workers actually choosing to leave the field and uh, probably with the idea that they don't want to confront that decision again, or at least under any kind of similar kinds of circumstances. But is there anything we've learned that would help us better prepare our frontline staff for dealing with potential psychological trauma? In other words, apart from the safety issues, what about the psychological trauma and you know, how we might maybe condition people to expect those kinds of choices and threats to their psychic well-being, if I could put it that way? 
Yeah, and, and in this case, the physical and the psychological are, are intertwined. So the, we've already mentioned the protection. That's a, a really significant aspect of this. But there's also aspects of communication that are really critical. And so being clear about what is known and what is not known is important for healthcare workers to make good decisions. And not interjecting in this conversation what we think we know, because that can change down the line. And so it has to be very, the messaging must be very clear. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we are currently doing to increase our understanding in these areas where we don't know. So that kind of communication is important. Making context experts available to healthcare workers, I think is also important. So providing some kind of opportunity for healthcare workers to ask questions of people that have a greater understanding than they do is important. Making its administrators, hospital administrators or other healthcare administrators available for conversation is important to show that the system is responsive to the needs of the healthcare workers so that they have a, a forum and a listening ear in this extremely stressful context. It can be as simple as providing some kind of emotional and physical support to the healthcare workers that are taking on these additional burdens, being able to give them access to mental health services as needed, counseling, therapy, whatever it might be for that particular worker so that they can feel like they are supported emotionally and physically. And then for those who fall ill, demonstrating a strong commitment to them so that healthcare workers feel that the health system has their back when they're putting themselves at risk. Facilitating communication with families if they have to isolate from their families is also an important step. So these are all things that the system can do to demonstrate that they are on the side of the healthcare workers so that the healthcare workers can do their job with a confidence knowing that they're taken care of. So now that we're getting toward the end of the worst aspects of this pandemic cycle in the United States, although we still see some dramatic situations in other parts of the world, what should we be thinking about in terms of, I suppose you might say, preparations of our healthcare system or adjustments in our overall healthcare system so that we might respond in the early parts of this kind of a pandemic more quickly and effectively to uh, what is likely to be another pandemic outbreak in the future? Are there some sort of early stage kind of prep preparatory steps that, you know, where we kind of blew it in this last, in this last go around? Well, I do believe that we need to make a concerted and deliberate effort to learn lessons. We need to have a concerted, systematic effort to catalog what went well in the context of the response to COVID, what didn't go well, and why. And this can then form the basis of a mitigation plan or a preparedness plan for a future event. I do believe that COVID was not, and maybe others might take issue with this, I don't believe that COVID was the worst case scenario. And I have a number of reasons for believing that. It was a really traumatic and awful situation, but I don't even believe that it, this was the, the worst case scenario. And so we need to learn our lessons from this. This is a situation that escalated with really significant rapidity that affected populations all over the world. We have the ability and opportunity to collectively take stock of what went well and what didn't. And that includes learning from other countries potentially that may or may not have had better responses than our own. Looking at what other societies, governments, and systems did 
to address the COVID situation. We have almost a natural experiment with many, many, many different decisions that were taken and trajectories that were taken. So that's one. The second would be a mantra that is common in the disaster relief world. And I actually took heart noting that uh, the current administration has actually adopted this phrase. And that is the phrase of build back better. So I've heard many people bemoan the situation and longing for a return to normal. And I think that's a normal response and that's a healthy response, wanting to go back to normal. But the reality is the previous normal that we had is what contributed to the pandemic unfolding the way that it did. And so if we return to that previous normal, then we fail to learn the lessons that COVID could teach us. And so instead of saying, let's return to normal, the mantra, let's build back better, should be our motivation and our motto moving forward. And that requires us to learn those lessons and adopt some of the behaviors that we could or should have adopted previous to this happening that would have mitigated it being as big of a problem as it was. So communication um, it seems to be something that's a critical area of, and I think you commented on this earlier, of importance in success in any kind of a pandemic scenario. And it would seem in the U.S. we, you know, we didn't get that right for a variety of different reasons. And what would you say we would need to do better in that domain, given what we did? I mean, in some ways we had we had too we had a lot of voices on from different quarters, but there was a lot of dissonance. I think one of the things we see, and this is a natural human tendency, so I'm not surprised that we saw this. In a crisis situation, leadership wants to project certainty in decision-making and saying that we're going to do this, 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 and this. And I think in many instances, that's appropriate and that is necessary to show and project confidence. However, when you're confident, but there is not an undergirding information to support that confidence, then that would require you at a future time when you gain more understanding about a situation to backtrack on that confidence and then be confident about something completely different. And so I think one of the lessons learned is that there is a delicate and fine balance and an important balance between confidence and uncertainty. Being clear about where there are uncertainties and why there's uncertainty and then being clear up front, our decisions and our trajectory is going to change. We will change how we respond to this pandemic based on what we're learning. Instead of projecting confidence from the get-go that we're going to do this and then having to change the course of action. I think an interesting example of this is in the case of the guidance around face masks and how early indications were that it wasn't something that was recommended or required and people adopted that viewpoint and then what seemed like a flip-flop but was based on new evidence and information that was coming in requiring face coverings in public was a, a position that was adopted and for people that type of going back and forth while it was based on new evidence projected a sense of a lack of competence in leadership and anything that came subsequently. So I think it's important to state upfront, we will change our trajectory 
we will change our recommendations as we get new information. These are the things we can confidently say now based on evidence. These are the things we are recommending that will change potentially based on what we learn moving forward. And, and that's a difficult balance to strike. Yeah, and I think, you know, we even saw that in terms of what we believed in the early stages or what was being offered in terms of, you know, grabbing a door handle or picking up a package on your porch or cleaning your vegetables in the kitchen. Exactly. Um, all of those things have sort of gone by the wayside over time, but they were part of the narrative at the, at the early stages. Leadership is also critically important here. And and um, and here we have global voices. We had, you know, voices at the federal level. We've had voices at the federal level saying the state should take responsibility. So then we transferred responsibility for leadership to the state level. Who should lead such efforts? It's, it's really striking to see the difference in approach between now between Trump and Biden administrations. But if we learn anything, it does seem that leadership matters. And what would be your comments on or observations on leadership and where it resides in a moment like this? I think it's an important question. And I think the first and fundamental aspect of leadership that we need to appreciate is that when a crisis like this happens, it presents an opportunity for leaders to do one of two things. One, on one side, is a leader that sees it as an opportunity to advance and deepen their political agenda and power. And that provides an opportunity to play upon the fears, stoke those fears, and manipulate them in such a way that deepens the toehold, the foothold on power and political force. And and we saw this in a number of states in our country, in a number of different countries, where this was seen as an opportunity to really lock down dissent, to clamp that down, to do things that would otherwise seem undemocratic in the guise, under the guise of responding to a pandemic. Now, I'm not saying that all decisions were like that. There are sound public health decisions based on public health evidence that need to be taken. So the other type of a leader would be one that's looking at it as a a crisis that needs to be addressed, whatever the course of action may be. And it may be politically expedient. It may not be politically expedient, um, but taking the decisions based on what the data and evidence are showing as a way to, to mitigate the disease, not for any other outside purposes. Now, that's kind of an idealistic view of a leader. Um, Is there such thing as a perfectly benevolent leader that can do that perfectly? I don't know. And maybe the reality is somewhere in between. But I would say that leveraging the opportunity to stoke fear and move forward in fear as a way to, to gain political advantage, I think we learned can have really detrimental impacts on the course of a pandemic. Another thing that was so central to the early stages of our response was this question of, of surveillance and trying to figure out where the disease was manifesting and trying to figure out how to track its its spread. And so what would, it's a really interesting question I think comes out of your paper is what about surveillance for mental health impacts? If we can think a little bit about that. In other words, we recognize now through your observations that it's a problem, but uh, how might we build it into future strategies? What would it take to be doing that right? From a public health perspective, surveillance is a, an activity that requires significant investment in time and resources to do it effectively. I'm not going to get too deeply into the esoterics of surveillance, but there's a distinction between active surveillance where you, the system, is actively trying to get an understanding 
of what is happening on the ground and assuming the burden of doing that surveillance versus a form of passive surveillance where the people come to you and the burden of that surveillance is on the population rather than on the system. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both, uh, but it requires significant investment in resources, in systems, and in processes to do right and to do effectively. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we feel that mental health is significant enough of a priority to invest in that type of a system? The answer is yes. The next question is, okay, what are we going to do about it? What are we willing to invest? How can we leverage existing surveillance systems, such as those in hospitals? How can we leverage other data collection activities and complement what we are trying to learn about mental health with those? And so an example is what recently happened here at the University of Notre Dame with our students trying to understand the impact of COVID on the students through regular data collection at the end of year, but expanding that data collection to encompass issues around how the students were feeling emotionally and psychologically and gaining a lot of insight from that process. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the whole kitchen sink, but asking how can we complement existing processes, existing resources, existing systems to help us gain a little bit more insight on the mental health issue, I think is, is the first step that we can take. So actually, I want to jump maybe now to the international level, because I think, Paul, this is an area you've spent a lot of time thinking about as part of your day-to-day work. And here in the U.S., we're caught up in trying to beat back the disease ourselves. But at the same time, incredibly, there are countries all over the world, obviously, who are in the same fight. But they're also fighting an HIV pandemic, as well as a resurgence of Ebola in the Congo. What can you tell us about how a health system manages a dual pandemic situation? It's, just, it's incredible to realize that this is some countries are actually faced with this. What, what have you heard or learned about those kinds of cases at this point? Well, it's interesting. When COVID hit, I was actually mid-project where we were partnering with an organization that was funding uh, a number of other organizations in the area of HIV care and treatment. And so in trying to get a sense of how these organizations were operating and learning about their impact on HIV, we also had the opportunity to start asking questions around the new reality that was imposed upon them by COVID. And we learned a couple of really interesting things. First, I'll start on the negative side so we can end with the positives and the the interesting insights that we gained on the positives. On the negative side, there was real concern that COVID would reverse some of the accomplishments that they had made and gains and strides that they had made in reversing the spread of HIV in these particular contexts. So for instance, HIV care and treatment requires the regular taking of medication, which requires a a healthy and a robust supply chain, which supply chains were disrupted by some of the lockdowns that happened, both in terms of production and in terms of transportation. It also made it so that a lot of these health systems did not have the ability to absorb other health issues because there were such urgent need to treat COVID cases. And so patients presenting with uh, symptoms related to AIDS or other health issues found themselves unable to attain the care 
that they needed to at that particular time because of COVID and the urgency of the COVID situation. And then it made it also difficult for patients to present to receive their medications on a regular basis because of lockdowns. And HIV care and treatment requires, as I mentioned, regular ingestion of this medication, which requires patients to present to the health system to get that, that medication. And lockdown, the different degrees of lockdown in different societies made that difficult. And so those were some of the complications that arose in addressing specifically HIV, but other health issues in these contexts. Now, on the flip side, there were lessons and benefits and advantages to be gained from the work that was done with some of these other issues. And I think one of them, particularly in the case of HIV, but not limited to this, was the sense that in order to adequately address and treat HIV, the whole health system needed to be strengthened. The financing issues, training of healthcare workers so that they were administering a treatment adequately, so providing well-trained workforce, ensuring adequate supply chain systems and stockouts, ensuring that financing was taken care of. All of those things that were done to adequately address HIV strengthened the larger health system, and that formed a basis for a more systematic response to COVID through the health system that would otherwise have been unavailable without these issues. And so I think a lot of public health work has transitioned away from siloed targeted interventions in a specific area such as HIV towards a more broad-based strengthening of the health system that allows that health system to respond better to some of these issues. And I think we can leverage that work in responding to COVID. Paul, that was great. And maybe with just a little bit of time we have left, I might ask you to comment on two things. One of them is you have a real commitment to the sustainable development goals. I'd be interested just to hear your you know, brief comment on how you think we're how you think COVID's impacted the realization of those goals. And and then maybe finally, just what gives you hope and what continues to concern you about how we're doing in this whole enterprise? I, I do spend a lot of time engaging around the sustainable development goals. And for those of you who are not familiar with what those entail, this is a set of 17 goals with hundreds of specific targets that articulate a vision of the world that we would like to see by 2030. And this is led by the United Nations, but it is has become a common language for institutions that are involved in the work of global development. It provides us all a common framework, a common language, a common vocabulary, and a common set of goals that we're trying to achieve. And so there's great power um, in spite of the criticisms that are levied against the sustainable development goals. I think I'll quote the UN itself. I was, and as I was looking through for this particular project that I already mentioned around HIV, as I was looking through the literature around how COVID might be affecting HIV, I came across an interesting quote from the UN. And they stated that in only a brief period of time, the COVID pandemic threatens to reverse years of progress on poverty, hunger, healthcare, and education. And, and they went on in this report to say that it is affecting the world's poorest and most vulnerable people the most. And so I think that is one of the areas of concern, is that we collectively and globally have made significant strides in improving the well-being of people across the world. Many people have been left behind, and those are the same people that are particularly negatively affected by COVID. And so it is a reality that COVID is likely to make it more difficult for us to achieve these goals. The areas that they mentioned, hunger with some of the economic issues that have arisen, and again, some of the global supply chain issues. 
we've got issues around equity. One of the interesting statistics that I've seen is that lockdowns are potentially increasing the risk of violence against women and girls as families are forced in close quarters within a really stressful situation. And so unfortunately, we're seeing some reversal of uh, gender equity in the world. And education is another big one. I've seen it with my own children. The transition to online education was a benefit that not everyone was able to achieve. But even that transition, um, there was some loss in translation in terms of educational outcomes. And we're going to, I think, see some degree of halting or potentially even reversal in what we've been able to achieve in education as a result of how it's affected the education system as a whole. In terms of positive, what gives me hope? What gives me hope is that we've all experienced this together. Everyone in the world, their lives have been affected in some way by this. And my hope is that this shared experience can enhance our ability to cross the aisle and try to understand people better, whether it's trauma as we experience trauma ourselves and being better able to understand trauma of people affected by disasters or conflict or oppression. And my hope is that translates into a better society for all of us. And we've already seen simultaneous movements for social change in our country and other countries across the world that have arisen in tandem with the, the COVID pandemic. And my hope is that we will be able to create better societies as a result of all of this. Paul, thanks. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation. And I think you've given us a really interesting perspective on a side of this COVID history we've lived over the last year that many of us have been, I think, aware of in terms of how we've lived through it. But I think you kind of made it real for us in terms of bringing forward this whole discussion about mental health and the impacts of uh, the COVID experience on our individual and collective mental health. So I want to thank you for that. And it's been a great conversation. I know we'll have another opportunity for another such conversation in the future. Thank you, Ray, for the opportunity to speak with you. And thanks for the great questions. Well, we've arrived at the end of our session. And uh, this has been a long year of isolation and worry across the world. So I certainly hope that this reflection on the psychological effects of this COVID moment has provided some new perspectives on a topic much discussed over the last year. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Perrin's work and the work of the Pulte Institute, just visit pulte.nd.edu. And for more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream and subscribe to a variety of different platforms. Thanks for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser. Stay safe and well, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keele School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keele School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.